Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Evelyn Zolan. Evelyn is a financial advisor and founder of Inspired Financial, an independent RIA in Southern California that provides financial planning and wealth management services for about 110 families and manages nearly $140 million in assets under management. What's fascinating about Evelyn's firm is that her business is focused entirely on a niche, working with women in transition, most commonly recent divorcees and widows. And by focusing in on a niche, she's been successful in working with affluent women, charging an asset center management fee with a minimum retainer of at least $10,000 a year, and driving almost $1.2 million of gross revenue with a, a team of just four advisors, including herself and two support staff. In this episode, Evelyn shares not only the details of her niche advisory practice itself, but how she selected the niche, the the way she communicated the transition to her niche, to her existing clientele, is she didn't actually pivot to this niche until after she had run her advisory firm for about five years and had already acquired another practice in the process. She also talks about the training she sought out to improve both her technical and, and relational capabilities in her niche, and how she leverages her niche to drive referrals from centers of influence. And be certain to listen to the end where Evelyn shares the staff structure of her firm, how she allocates clients amongst herself and the other advisors of the firm, and the weekly meeting process that she uses to keep her team on track and well-coordinated while serving all the firm's clientele as an ensemble practice. And remember, you can find a list of all the resources we mentioned on this podcast, including a, a number of great books and training programs that Evelyn suggests at www.kitsis.com slash 21 for this episode 21. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Evelyn Zolan. Welcome, Evelyn Zolan, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. So I've I've been looking forward to this episode because I've kind of followed your career trajectory for years because you and I both got involved with the Financial Planning Association, I think like right around the same time in the early 2000s. And I can't even remember what the event was. We did some early event, I want to say maybe 2004 or 2005, talking about people like coming into the industry. And I was talking about next gen stuff and you were a quote, recent career changer into the industry. And I think like Cynthia Zalewski from upstate New York was on with us. And and we were telling these stories about our, our paths into the industry. And how we arrived. Yes, that would have been in San Diego in 2005. And it, and that's exactly what it was. It was a, a sort of a bridge the gap program for folks entering the financial planning profession. I had literally been in California for about six months at that point and had had my business, had my practice for only about, oh, two and a half years. So I was really early in the profession at that time. 
Wow, very cool. And you you have quite a memory. It was 2005 in San Diego. Now I now I think I remember that as well. That was the year Dave Bergman ran the program because he gave everybody T-shirts that said, I survived a Dave Bergman Bridge the Gap program. Exactly right. And I, I'll have to share, you'll find this particularly funny because you know this man. But in 2005, at that same conference, I met one Mark Prendergast for the very first time. Oh, I've heard of him. Don't, don't you kind of work with him now? Yes. As a matter of fact, He's my director of tax strategies during the day, and he's my husband the rest of the time. So I met him for the very first time at FPA, the FPA conference in San Diego in 2005. See, so this is, this is a fantastic plug for the Financial Planning Association. You can find both business partners and life partners by traveling to a national right, an exceptional organization for CFP professionals and all that care about financial planning. And you might meet your spouse there, too. Just, uh, just an added bonus. Yes, exactly. Well, so you've been, I guess, about 15 years now into the firm since since that transition in the early 2000s. So let's start. Can you just tell us a little bit about your advisory firm as it exists today? Like, what is the firm? What do you do? Who do you serve? Right. So I um, inspired financial as what I would dub full-on wealth management. I know we're a little squishy in our profession about, well, is it financial planning? Is it wealth management? But we would describe ourselves as full-on wealth management. So we're doing investment management, of course, for our clients, but deep dive comprehensive financial planning that includes a lot of collaboration with their other financial professional providers like their attorneys and CPAs and such. So the um, firm is quite comprehensive in nature. There's six of us on the team. And of those six, four are financial planners. And I have two client service operations types supporting us. And we've got a really deep bench on the financial planning side. Three of the four are CFP professionals and our fourth will be sitting for the exam in July. I've got a CPA. I've got two CDFAs. I've got an MBA in finance and portfolio management. We're basically a bunch of nerds, which you of all people can appreciate that. I can, I can certainly appreciate that. The love the alphabet soup and all the expertise yep, that it brings. All of that. And obviously, that's I, I mentioned it just as an indicator that we're passionate about the profession and ongoing learners. We're really students of financial planning. And not only on the technical side, the alphabet soup gives away the technical side, but we also are um, very serious about the relational behavioral communication side of our profession as well. And that's important as it relates to inspired financial because inspired financial is a bit unique and that we have a very focused niche that we are experts in serving and we've dubbed them women in transition, which is a phrase that gets bandied about somewhat. Here in California, I one time had somebody say, does that mean they're in the middle of a gender change? And I had to clarify, no, predominantly this means widows and divorcees. And over the years, we've determined women are always in transition. So the the transitions take a lot of forms, but we take care of a lot of widows and divorcees and their families in our firm. So the technical is important, but the relational and communications and behavioral is um, equally, if not more, important for this particular niche. We take care of about 110 families, and we have about $140 million in assets under advisement or management, however you'd like to arm wrestle over that descriptor. Okay. Very interesting. Really, to me, speaks to kind of the, the service intensiveness and the relationship depth when you say you know, 110 families, households, 
and six people on the team of whom four are in financial planning roles, right? So in a, in a world where a lot of advisory firms staff 60 clients per advisor, 80 clients per advisor, some even go to 100 clients per advisor, you're at about 25 to 30 clients per per advisor. It is, it's an excellent observation because we struggle with this somewhat. We definitely have capacity. We definitely have capacity to bring on more clients without necessarily bringing on more planning staff. And when we look at metrics within our profession regarding the average number of clients per planner within a firm, I always cringe a little bit about, wow, we are so low as far as the number of clients per advisor. Do I need to be doing something about that? And we talk about that as a team and have decided that while we definitely have some capacity, we are always going, we are going to make a choice to have fewer clients per advisor or per planner because of the breadth and depth, the intensity of the services that we're providing our clients. The, these, these women, the, 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 these widows and these divorcees, and these other transitions are very, very intense relationships, particularly at the outset. And they need a significant amount of partnership and handholding, much more so than pretty much any other demographic that a firm could choose to focus. And for that reason, we are always going to need to have fewer numbers of clients per planner because we want to take care of these ladies in that manner. And, and that's a choice that we're going to have to embrace. But that also means that we can't take all of them. And this takes me to our, our, our minimums, if you will. This is, can be kind of a testy topic or one of spirited discussion, I'd say, within our profession. About say, like, you know, the, as much as you know, 20-something clients per advisor is called a, a low, in air quotes, a low number relative to some others in the industry, you know, 110 families and 140 million of AUMs, like your your average client is is more than a million dollars of investable assets. Like there there is a there's a healthy amount of revenue per client to to make some of this math work. And and I guess I'm wondering like are you are you does your firm bill assets under management? Is that still the the business model? For what you do, great question. Our so our, our for your listeners, our, our revenue is about one point two million dollars on the hundred forty ish million, and we bill on a combination of retainer and assets under management. Like many planners, two thousand eight and two thousand nine was pretty crushing from a financial perspective. At that time, we were strictly on assets under management model and addressed that. Um, after we dug ourselves out of that hole by putting in a minimum annual retainer for all of our clients. So we have a minimum annual retainer of $10,000 for all our clients. It's pretty simple to do the math on that. That's 1% at a million dollars. But on assets above a million dollars, we have a graded down fee schedule. And we are very quick to communicate with our prospective clients and clients that this fee is not for asset management, although asset management certainly is part of the wealth management services we provide for you. But we use your assets as a proxy for the complexity of your situation, understanding it's not perfect, but a rough proxy for the complexity of your situation, which is why we're using an assets under management fee calculation model. There's a lot, a lot of room for discussion around this within our profession. And I think that you and, and Bob Beres and a lot of other thought leaders are doing a good job of bringing out pros and cons challenges and opportunities for really taking a hard look at how we're compensated. And what I've taken away from it is that 
whoa, there's no easy answer to this. But for us, this is working pretty well right now. Folks get the size of assets as a rough proxy for complexity, and they seem to be at peace with that. Now, for clients who clear and are well clear of your million dollar limit. So if the asset base that would necessitate a $10,000 fees, like if someone comes to you with one and a half million or 2 million or some bigger number than that, are, are they still some kind of blended retainer plus AUM fee? Or is the idea that, you no, know, like we, we basically just run an AUM fee, but we have a minimum fee of $10,000. So if you're below that, but you want to pay for our services, Hey, if you got the financial wherewithal, that's your prerogative. You'll you'll take them on as a client, even if they don't have the assets, because they'll pay the fee. And obviously, if someone's at like one point one million and there's a bear market, they're going to bump into that ten thousand dollar minimum fee. So you you you've got your your minimum level. But it, it, like once they're once they clear the asset base necessary for a ten thousand dollar minimum fee, are you still doing some layer of retainers or is it just straight no, it, AUM? It goes straight point? AUM at that point. Straight AUM. But it does allow us to work with clients that may not have that million dollars right at that moment for whatever reason. And I always make the joke, the half joke, that one of the nice things about the being the founder, president, head janitor, and chief bottle washer of my company is that I get to choose to work with whomever I like and having a, a minimum annual retainer keeps me from giving away the farm, from bringing on everybody because I have a soft heart and end up punishing, I'm putting that in air quotes, my team when I give in to my soft heart of wanting to take care of all these ladies and their families. So the minimum annual retainer allows me to work with the doctor up in the Bay Area who is getting divorced and her half is going to be of the settlement is going to be about $800,000, but she's saving aggressively and she's got a lot of complex financial planning needs. Well, this is somebody that I feel pretty comfortable bringing in because she needs our help, our partnership, and I have a high level of confidence that it also makes economic sense for her in the long run. Well, and, and I and I think you highlight what actually is a an interesting trend about how we're seeing retainer models play out. And you know, we've actually had a few people on the podcast here that have talked about different types of fees. We had Carolyn McClanahan on at one point, who I think I think you know as well, who runs just a, a like a straight retainer fee model. No AUM component at all, although part of how she sets her retainer fee is she does kind of look at total assets and kind of as part of a proxy for setting her fee, but like there, there's no percentage. It's just she sets a retainer fee. People can go back and listen to that if they want. It's uh, kitsis.com slash nine for episode nine. So like Carolyn does a retainer fee. You know, we had Sophia Barra on who does monthly retainer fees for young folks. That was episode 12. But you know, I've also written a lot about this from the the industry benchmarking perspective because we have a lot of a lot of really good studies on industry benchmarking about what advisors are doing and and the interesting phenomenon that you see when you look at a lot of those benchmarking studies is that notwithstanding all the chatter around retainer fees, very very few firms are actually moving to retainer fees, and the one notable exception basically is a lot of firms are instituting retainer fees as a way to ensure they generate a minimum level of revenue per client. Okay, the the you know the exact version that you're that you're doing here. Hey, here's what we need to get paid to make sure that the solution we're providing is fairly compensated for what we do and that we can cover our staff and the things that we deliver. So here's our minimum fee. And if your assets don't add up to this, but you find it meaningful to pay this, like I'm not going to stop you. Maybe 
maybe you just really want the services, you know, maybe you're heck, you got $10 million, but it's all tied up in a business, but the business kicks out hundreds of thousands of dollars a year of revenue. So paying 10 grand is not a problem for that person. But if you want their assets, they just aren't any to manage that I, I find it interesting to watch this emergence of retainer fees as a, you know, as opposed to setting a minimum asset level where it's like, Hey, I'm sorry, you don't have a million dollars. I won't work with you. It's look, here's what we charge as a minimum. If you want to come up to this fee, you're welcome to work with us. And here's what we do. It'll easily make sense if you've got the assets, but if you don't, or the assets are in another form, you know, here's the fee. If you're willing to pay it, we'd be happy to work with you. Right. And I think that there's power in that clarity, knowing what is my minimum to be able to provide the types of services that we want and for me to be a good business owner, take care of my team, keep the lights on. And then, oh yeah, being the shareholder, so to speak, it's nice if I get some dividends from that as well. I also think though that it, it benefits us if we take a sort of pay it forward. There's plenty of business for all of us kind of a view because I'm always quick to point out if I think it's of true value to them. I'll j- I'm a very straight shooter. And I will say to her, you have a significant amount of complexity in your life. And whether it's us or somebody else, you really need to get with a good financial planner. And I believe that we would be a good match. And here's the value that we would provide that would make it worth our minimum annual retainer. As many times as I've said that, though, I've said, your situation's relatively straightforward. And while we would be a great partner for you. I am not sure it makes economic sense. Given, given the non-complexity of your situation. Uh-huh, exactly right. And um, and I'm always careful about using that. I'll give you a poke real quick and say, I'm careful about saying your situation's not complex. I'll, I'll literally, it's a, a crafting word choice. Your situation is relatively straightforward because if you're a widow or you're a divorcee, it does not feel good to have somebody tell you, you know, what you're going through is not complex because it right. is so I know complex. Your, I know your life feels like it's insane and trash right now, but hey, it's we think it's actually really simple. Not too bad. No, 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 no. So word choice matters, but I do say it's relatively straightforward and I want to be sure, well, I would, I would love to be your partner. It needs to make economic sense for you as well. And with that in mind, um, what I'm going to recommend for you is that I, um, I have this conversation colleague who I know quite well. I have done some vetting and they provide great services, but their business model is different from mine. And I think that they would be a great match for taking good care of you and having it be a good value for you as well. Well, the clouds part, the angels descend, everybody's happy because she gets with somebody who's going to take great care of her. It's going to be happy to have her as a client. And I feel like somebody I care about is going to be in good hands. Well, and and I find there's an interesting dynamic that crops up when you set a minimum fee structure and that you know, the challenge with having minimums, I mean, in, in that same kind of sort of the awkward judgmental kind of thing, like I don't, I don't want to say to a prospect like, oh, well, your, your problems just actually aren't that complex. So you don't need me, which may or may not sort of be technically true, but is very condescending and belittling to the person who feels like their problems are really, really complex. There's a similar dynamic that it, it feels horrible to tell someone like, I know you've accumulated what to you is the most money you've ever had in your life, but you just don't qualify to work with me. Really? I, I find most advisors feel really awkward about actually stipula- stating and stipulating minimums. 
uh, minimum assets and that minimum fees, I find just, it turns that conversation around, right? Because it's not, oh, I'm sorry, we only work with people who have a million dollars and you don't, so have a nice life. It's, you know, look, our our minimum fee is $10,000. You know, for many of our clients, we manage at least a million dollars of assets. And so that would be a 1% AUM fee, which is consistent with a lot of folks. But our minimum fee is $10,000. And if this is meaningful for you, we'd be happy to work with you. And so now, like, you don't have to reject the client for not having the assets. You let the client reject you for just not wanting to pay the fee, which I guess for some of us feels worse when you set up someone to reject you. But it, like, it's easier to let them reject you, I find, than it is to reject them. At least that's what I, that's what I certainly find. I'm like, I've got a soft spot as well in trying to help people. I hate turning them away. And so saying you just don't meet my minimums feels bad, but saying like, I know this is my value. And if this value doesn't make sense to you, that's your choice, can shifts the onus to them and makes it easier to turn away folks without sort of belittling their assets and their savings and their net worth and just making the point we're not a good fit because here's what we charge for what we do. But that takes a pretty mature planner, somebody who's really comfortable and confident in their own skin and one who's feeling financially secure in their own right to open a clear path away from them to somebody else, particularly if that planner goes so far as to say, I have an alternate that I would recommend for you. And it may be ultimately that that's what's in the best interest of this client, but it's it's tough to send away a potential client like that. And it it takes somebody who's really, like I said, comfortable in their own skin, comfortable with where they are and where their practice is to be able to do that. So I'm I'm curious how the service model works at at your firm. So with about 110 families and four planners, like do do each of you keep 20 something clients and that's it? Or like, do you tag team clients? Like, oh, well, there's a pair of us that work with 50 and then the other pair work with the other 50 or 60. Like, what does that look like in terms of how you actually interact with clients amongst four different advisors? That's a great question. And we actually work off of Angie Herber's Diamond Teams. I know that you interviewed Angie and that was terrific, a terrific conversation with her. And so we use a variation of her Diamond Teams. I joke we've got a half diamond because there's three planners, a senior planner, lead planner, and associate planner on our half diamond. And then I've got this odd duck technical specialist who's my director of tax strategies. So the four of us collectively work on every client situation. We each bring a technical area of expertise for to the table for each of our clients. I've one of my planners is very knowledgeable around insurance. One is very knowledgeable around tax and estate. On my end, I'm I'm the expert on our team regarding the investments and retirement planning. So obviously every client we have needs all of that support together. So from that perspective, we're fully ensemble. Every client of the firm is a full client of every person within the team. Having said that, we do have a lead planner assigned or a head planner assigned to each relationship so that somebody has always got their eye on the ball for a particular client. And I take it it's it's not always you who's the lead on all of those clients? No, no. As the owner of the firm and the um, primary rainmaker, I'm, I'm the one who's 
probably making or doing most of business development, it's it's essential that I not be on lead with all these relationships. I um, know and love every one of these clients. I know their dogs and their cats. I know their kids and when they got married, I, all of this, but I cannot take all of them on as my personal relationships. And so it's been uh, a challenge for me to let them go. It's like setting my babies free in the world. And the thing that gives me peace and comfort in doing so is my amazing team, just a a superlative team. And I know you've talked with other guests on your podcast about the importance of building a great team and the importance of good hires. And all I can do is echo that. And and I have, I'm, I'm blessed to have some really strong team members. And so with that, I'm comfortable in saying, okay, I'm going to handle these, you know, 30 clients and you are in charge of these 70 clients And then my associate planner might be taking care of a half dozen clients that have very, very straightforward situations. So I'm curious how those handoffs work then in in a world where you're doing, you're the rainmaker, you're doing the business development, particularly in something as emotionally intense as working with women in transition or even just clients in transition in general, like... Hey, meet Evelyn. She's one of the area's leading experts in working with recent divorcees. And then you get introduced with Evelyn. Evelyn's like, oh, we'd love to work with you. Have you met Kevin? Right. And like all this thing. They're like, no, I, I thought I was referred to you. You're supposed to be the expert. And, and all of a sudden, like you're, you're sending me to, to someone else. And, but I, I wanted you because, well, not that you're the rainmaker from the client's prospects perspective. Like you're the one. You're the visible one. You're, you're the one. So. How do those handoffs happen, especially on issues as emotionally laden as divorcees and widows and situations like that? It's a trick because it's initially when I started the business, it was all me. And my friend Carolyn, who you um, interviewed, says, Evelyn, it can't be all about you. It's got, it can't be the Evelyn show. You need to move them along. And I say, okay, Carolyn, I'm working. I could so hear Carolyn saying that too. (laughs) I'm working on that. And so the way that we address that is pretty much from the first moment we meet with them. Our discovery meeting, which is, you know, a a no decision zone, we're doing a mutual checking each other out, kicking of the tires. From the very first meeting, they're introduced to members of the team. And some of our first words are, we have an incredible team of experts who are very experienced in taking care of women who have had experiences like yours. And while you are completely unique in the path that you are walking, we've walked alongside others like you and our team is able to help you in the various areas of challenge and opportunity you're facing. And I, from the very, very beginning, will bring in other team members and not just bring them in sort of as a window dressing, sitting at the end of the table, but invite them to weigh in with comments and opinions and ideas. And so almost from the beginning, I am in the process of making it less about me and more about the team. And we very, very rarely have run into somebody who really dug in and resisted on that. I've had, I can literally count them on my thumbs. The number of times somebody has said, look, I would really rather work with you, or I would really rather work with Mark. And And in that situation, easy enough. We can take care of that. Obviously, I've got a problem if all 110 are saying that, but that's not the case. One or two is is 
quite manageable given the the depth of the team. And it actually feels so good to our clients that when they call, anybody who picks up the phone is going to know who they are. And again, know their dogs, their cats, their kids. And when they got married, they're very, we're all very familiar with each client's situation. And it's like, cheers. Everybody knows your name. They feel really good about having a whole team of people taking care of them as opposed to maybe just Evelyn. She's wonderful, but she's only one person. So is there some point then where, you know, if, if virtually everyone on the in the firm is touching every client where you do hit capacity? You know, I mean, if, if we if everyone had their own 27 clients, then clearly we've got some room. But if really it's everybody is touching 110 clients, do you have some feeling or concern that, that you start hitting a capacity here, uh, I don't know, 110? 30 families or 150 families, like at some point we're just, there's, there's too many cats and dogs names to, to remember just the sheer number of people and families that everybody is touching. Right. Isn't this where CRM becomes so important? Because I actually don't have all 110 dogs and cats names set to memory. What I do have that is- That would be a, per- a really neat parlor trick if you could though. <laughs> <laughs> Only about half of them set to memory. <laughs> but I, I do have a very robust CRM system. We use Salesforce. It's integrated with Ignite, which is document management for us. And we use mind mapping as part of our discovery meeting process to capture those sorts of personal nuances that are may seem insignificant, but are so important when you're just building relationship with a client and maintaining relationship with a client. So the seriousness with which we take collecting initial information about our client and capturing it and then referring to it regularly going forward helps with that, you know, relationship across all parties involved. But then you ask a great question about, okay, if everybody's touching them, how do you really serve all of these people? Or just keep track of who did, who did what? I mean, I know like the straightforward answer is, well, you just document it all in your CRM, but like that's, that's a lot of stuff to document. That's a lot of stuff to to coordinate on. So like, do you, do you guys just live in Salesforce? Is that just part of the deal? We are pretty serious about getting it all in there. The other part that we're very serious about is documented processes. We have, we've t- spent an incredible amount of time and energy and a fair amount of consultant dollars in building processes, procedures that integrate with our systems. And are the, and I will go so far as to say the idiosyncrasies of some of our team members to make sure that things are happening when they're supposed to and they're documented to so that everybody else knows when Mark reviews a tax return or Kevin has done a long-term care insurance policy analysis. And so, and I would be delusional and lying if I said that it was foolproof that like many firms or most firms, there's, we still have things that we drop the ball on that one and we need to go, have to go back and do some mopping up. I'd give us a B plus, maybe even an A minus on getting things into Salesforce. And another thing that really helps us with this is that we have a weekly team meeting. It's got a very structured agenda every single week, Tuesdays at 10 o'clock with this structured agenda. And everybody rotates through as the facilitator for that team meeting. And if you stick to the agenda on this team meeting, we do a pretty good job. This I'd give us a solid A to A plus on staying current with what's going on with clients for the week past and the week coming up. 
So what does this weekly team meeting look like? You said Tuesdays at at 10 a.m. Tuesdays at 10. Mm -hmm. And and what does that agenda look like? Like, what do you actually talk about? What do you do? So we start with a check-in that's sharing good news or something to present or telling a joke if you got nothing else. And then we've got second item is going through our recurring checklist items, anything that needs heightened visibility with, you know, me scheduling client meetings or um, events scheduled. If we, we will go through the recurring checklist and then we'll go through metrics. Our third agenda item is we will, we have a set schedule for reviewing for metrics. So this might be client meetings. This might be revenue. This might be net new assets or website hits. You know, we've got all kinds of different data points that we track. And so we've integrated those metrics into our weekly team meetings on a set schedule. And then we'll go through projects. We uh, Once a quarter, we meet off-site for a quarterly review meeting where we set 90-day priorities, which are supporting our one-year and five-year goals. And so then every week, we go through our project checklist, the 90-day projects, to see how we're doing. And and then the, the back half of the meeting is all about brainstorming problems to be solved. It could be related to those projects that I just mentioned, or it could be reviewing the upcoming meeting, client meeting checks, or, uh, to check through and see are there things that we need to tackle? And that gets to your question about, well, how do you make sure things don't slip through the cracks? Well, we are looking at upcoming client calls and meetings uh, a week to two weeks in advance, which really helps us stay ahead of the curve on making sure tasks get done on a timely basis. Interesting. So this this sounds a lot like Gina Wickman's traction framework. Is that is that where this comes from? For Actually, you? I have to give total props to this too, Tracy Beckus. I've been working with been working with Tracy Beckus as our coach. And I um, I will confess, I don't know if this is her original intellectual capital or if she's putting together from other sources, but it's been terrific for us. We've been doing this about two years now. And I would, it's not an overstatement to say it's revolutionized how we are able to keep up with information and get things done around our office. I've, I've gone through something similar. You know, I started around my own business doing kind of a, a much more rigorous weekly meeting schedule with the whole team after frankly years of of resisting it. I like my sort of unstructured environment because I'm a creative type. So I, I like my unstructured space and have you know a long career history of pushing back against structure. And so like ah, I don't I don't wanna I don't have a standing weekly meeting on my on my schedule. This is just restricting and will drown me out and whatever other strange things I were going through my head. And then eventually I hearing so many recommendations about it, I I I just started doing it and ours is Monday mornings at 1030 in the morning. So we, I give everyone an hour or two to get going. And actually some of my team is, is on a central time zone and I'm East time, East coast time zone. So that lets them kind of get into the office or, or get into their home office and get going. But we've been doing it for probably a year and a half now. And yeah, it, it's really been very transformative for, for business. Just having that steady structure, that steady heartbeat of every Monday morning at 10.30 a.m., everybody knows what's going on. We're all coming together and we're going to go through our stuff. And it's very similar. You know, We talk a, a little bit of metrics. We talk about some project priorities, look at all the to-dos for the upcoming week and kind of make sure we're on task about projects. And then a chunk of time just dealing with problems that have come up that we need everybody to help think through together and just lots of brainstorming time. So we actually did an article on the on the blog just a month or two ago about this. So we'll link to it in the 
in the show notes as well for people who want to check it out. Kitsis.com slash 21 for episode 21. But yeah, it's just, it's really powerful. And I'm, so I'm curious, the, the, the other piece that I know at least a f- few firms that do is not only do they do their weekly meetings, they do daily check-ins as well, like five minutes every morning, just going through what's going on in the business that day. Do you, do you guys do any kind of daily process or, or just you're, you're comfortable with your weekly? We have not, but I tell you what we have incorporated that's, I'll call it between the weeklies, is we'll do stand-ups. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of stand-up meetings and where um, this, this, it's for exactly what you're describing, though, is that quick five minutes, hey, let's all gather around and we've got a, like a central bullpen area that I call where all of our planning, where our planning team works. And so I'll say, I'd like to do a stand-up this morning to touch base on where are we with onboarding our three new clients. And so we'll all, the whole gang will gather around and it's literally two or three minutes. That's the reason nobody sits it's because once you're hit to chair, things really slow down. If uh, you know, if people sit, then they can start hanging out and they can start chit-chatting. Like when you make everybody keep standing, they just kind of get their stuff done because if they want to sit down, the only way you get to sit down is get through your stuff quickly and then you can move on with your day. Exactly. So the stand-up, they're not scheduled every day, but we probably have a stand-up twice a week in between our weekly team meetings, which for us is has been an appropriate frequency for doing that. And they both the stand-ups the weekly team meetings and the quarterly review meetings are opportunities for us to check in on self-reflection and also to push each other, nudge each other a little bit to, you know, strive for more than what we think we might be able to do on our own. Our team says, I know you've got more in you than that. So let's, let's get you to show up even bigger and better than you think you even can. And then we help hold each other accountable. It's really easy to talk yourself out of taking care of things when life gets busy and these stand-ups weekly and quarterly meetings help us hold each other accountable. Well, and I find a lot of it is just the, the, the accountability that goes with, okay, every Monday at 1030 or for you guys, every Tuesday at 10 a.m., like there's going to be a meeting and we're going to look at all the to-dos we were knocking through last week and all the to-dos we need to do this week. So, your stuff kind of gets done because no one wants to be the one that shows up at the meeting where we go through all the to-dos and you're the one that didn't do things. And it's like such a little nudge around accountability, but it, it works amazingly well. And there's no public shaming, but you don't want to get the look, you know, nobody wants to get the look about not having done you know, your you don't, stuff. You don't have to proactively publicly shame anyone. You're just... Put people in a room where one person knows that they didn't do the things they were supposed to do and they know that everybody else knows they, they didn't do the things they were supposed to do. And like, you shame yourself plenty fine without anybody else saying anything. It still works. You know, and, and I'll make sure we put a link out to Tracy Beckett's website as well for, for people who are interested. I love her, her coaching business. Her tagline is creating an effortless, outrageous business, which is just such a, uh, such a fun aspirational statement around effortless and outrageous. So tracybeckus.com, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make sure we've got that in the, in the show notes as well. I want to understand a little bit more about the nature of the the niche that you work in. So you said women in, in transition. So can you talk to us a little bit more about, I guess, what, what does that mean as a niche? Like who really does that mean you serve? And and what do you what do you do for them? I mean, like at the end of the day, is it just you say it's women transition, but you're pretty much doing similar financial planning to what other firms would do. You've just got a particular group that you market to, or does it reshape what you do or something in between? So 
Tell us about that a little bit more. Is it just garden variety financial planning with window dressing or is there something more going on here? You've, you've got you got $140 million in, in 15 years. So, I, I mean, if it's window dressing, it's working pretty darn good as well. I wouldn't knock that. But, but I'm just curious to understand more how you how you view this as a, as a niche. Sure. We actually went through a pretty serious process in determining to select this niche. Just a tiny bit of backstory. I started my practice in 2003 in 2000 in Philadelphia because I was working at Vanguard and I left the Vanguard group to start my own financial planning practice. And in 2005, I bought another financial planning practice here in Southern California. I moved out here in March of 2005 and it was pretty much heads down for the next 18 months, just trying to merge these two practices together, get to know all the clients, kind of, you know, build all those relationships. And so truly heads down, just trying to get this all taken care of. And after about a year and a half, I felt like I finally <gasps> came up for air and you kind of look around, you look around and you're surveying sort of the landscape of your practice in front of you. And I remember thinking, so is this the way I want it to be? Am I serving the people I want to serve? Am I providing the services that I would like to? Because when you when you buy, I've, I've given this analogy several times that before for colleagues who've asked about this, that when you buy another financial planning practice, it's like buying a pet store. And when you buy a pet store, you get everything inside the pet store. And that might be the, the dogs and the cats and the birds and the snakes and the fish and the lizards. And you may have just really wanted the fish and the lizards, but you've got all of them. And you have to make a call about, is that okay? Or are you going to do something else about it? And so in our case in 2007... We actually retained a consultant to help us in a year-long process of making some choices around this. And this included things around client segmentation and around branding and, and service models. And it was really an extraordinary year. It was a really pain, big pain in the butt kind of a year. Uh, it was so much work. It was such a huge lift to do all of this because the end result of it was that we decided, no, we, w- we don't feel like we want to be all things to all people, which is a real challenge that a lot of financial planners have. They try to be everything to everybody. And we made a conscious choice, put a stake in the ground. No, we're not going to. And we want to serve this particular niche. And I'll talk about the niche as per your question in a second. But it was at that time that we also decided that we want to provide the deep dive financial planning services. You could provide good financial planning that's not necessarily deep dive all the way to your toes. And we decided that's what we wanted to do. And in order to do that, we were going to have to be compensated more than a couple thousand dollars for a planning relationship. And so it was at that time that we raised our minimums. But the decision to focus on women in transition started with, okay, so what exactly do we mean by a woman in transition? Because when we, we were doing the analysis for segmentation on our existing bulk of business, so to speak, it, we were really struck with what we discovered. For one thing, I was really struck by the number of engineers that I had as clients. And I thought, well, that explains a lot because I ended, I, I was really stunned by the number of deep dive investment conversations I was having. As a left brain girl or woman, I, you know, it made my heart sing. But really, at the end of the day, I don't believe that deep dive hours long conversations about alpha and R squared and beta and that sort of thing really adds a whole lot to 
um, a client achieving their financial goals. And so it was a, a choice to not go in that direction. But the other surprise was the number of women who when they came to us, they were widowed or divorced. While they were with us, they got divorced or became a widow. And we talked a lot about the satisfaction of being a partner alongside a woman and her family at what is probably one of the most difficult moments in her life when she's doubting herself, she's fearful of her financial future, scared to death she's going to make a bad decision or someone's going to take advantage of her. And to be that partner, that I'll say trusted partner, I know that gets just beat to death. Everybody uses it, but that's how we truly view our relationship. We're walking with you right by your side and we're going to educate and empower you so you feel confident about making great decisions. Cue up. I am woman. Hear me roar. But right here, standing right over your shoulder, we've got your back. And this is exciting. It's powerful. And then we said, okay, but what does that mean for actual financial planning? We can get all warm and fuzzy and excited and inspired, no pun intended, about that. But what's that mean for actual financial planning? And that's when we made some choices around technical expertise and then relational expertise. And so on the technical expertise side, we have spent a tremendous amount, and as we talked about earlier, a tremendous amount of time and energy becoming technical experts in taking care of women going through a divorce or women who are navigating their life after their husband has died. And at the same time, a lot of relational expertise. We spend a a lot of time in communications training, a lot of time in understanding behavioral finance. Why is she unable to make a decision? How tough is this for heaven's sakes? Well, there's real physiological reasons why that is, and we've become students of that so that we can help her with it and we can be be patient and 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 give her comfort along the way as she's learning how to make those decisions. And and then it's something as simple as What's your office look like? And I know that there have been a lot of articles and, and even webinars and sessions around, so what, what's the message you give your clients and prospects when they come through your door? Do you have CNBC streaming? Do you have the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal sitting in your magazine rack? And for us, very, very conscious decision and not manipulative, but just aware of what is our client going to see or what is our prospect going to feel when she comes through the door. And so we have travel and leisure. We have food and wine. I have Wine Spectator all in my magazine rack. When you come into our conference room, we have two big maps of the world up on our wall. And on another wall, we've got four clocks with four different time zones of countries around the world. And the idea is about that there's life and goals and dreams that you have. And travel is always a popular one. That's why we've got the maps and the clocks. But there, you have a life ahead of you that can be greater and more rich than you may ever be able to imagine. And we want to help her get there. And so we'll do the technical things that we need to, to help her do that. But we'll also make sure that we are going to be communicating and relating to her in a manner that helps her gain that confidence and move forward. So where do you learn this stuff? I mean, just, is this just school of hard knocks? Like uh, after we've done enough clients of this and we occasionally screw things up, we eventually figure out how to do it better next time and learn our technical and relational skills over time? Or, or did you find like, training to work with 
women or women in transition or women with divorce issues? Like, how do you actually learn this stuff? Yeah. Un- unfortunately, there were plenty of the after the fact, well, that went really badly. And I wish I had done things differently there. And you don't you don't it only takes one or two of those to start remembering the lessons learned from that particular interaction. But fortunately, we are, we're very well wired to learn. <laughs> yes. The greater the discomfort, the stronger the lesson. Right. But we're also very blessed within our profession to have a lot of big thinkers, really thoughtful, considerate folks that have discussed and and become students of how do we help people going through these kinds of situations. And so there's all kinds of resources. I mentioned the um, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst credentialing that provides us great technical expertise around divorce financial planning. What's I think what folks struggle with a little more is on the relational side. Well, what do I do about that? And even there, all kinds of great resources. I'll toss out a few, uh, including one of my favorites. Of course, the Sudden Money Institute, outstanding resources for helping clients of all types, not just widows, but any t- any client that has come into money unexpectedly is this is just Susan Bradley and her team are great at helping serve those types of clients. Didn't Sunny Sudden Money Institute recently launch like an actual designation in this, like a certified financial transitionist? Yes, and the folks I ha- I have I and my team have not um, gone through that particular credentialing yet. Uh, we were all they were both worried about CDFA initially, but we've got our eye on that as sort of a ongoing or continuing education. And the folks that I have spoken with that have gone through it have said it was so helpful, incredibly robust curriculum. And not just the curriculum, but the community of like-minded professionals provide a lot of resources to talk about issues and compare notes and details of how you're building these relationships with clients that are going through what is often a very difficult time in their life. There's also some technique around helping folks from a sort of an emotional, relational perspective with the uh, folks at Money Quotient. Amy Mullen and Carol Anderson there have some terrific resources. And then another that may be less familiar, but I tell you what, we love her work is Amy Florian. Amy Florian with Core Genius out of the Chicago area, uh, truly hands down the number one expert, in my opinion, on how to communicate with um, somebody who has lost a loved one, somebody who's dealing with the death of a spouse or a child. She has a, a seminar that she gives once or twice a year around grieving communications. How do you talk to somebody when they are grieving? And she has a book called No Longer Awkward. It is so important that it has a place of honor on in the middle of our bullpen. I told you we have a financial planning bullpen where we all work together. It's, it's like on the top shelf of our bullpen there because we reference it all the time in how to communicate, particularly with our widows. But it, there's even a section on communicating with people going through divorce because there's a, a level of grief that goes along with that. And that is such a powerful resource. So Amy Florian, and I'm not getting any kickbacks for Amy. On no, this, no, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put a, we'll put a copy of a link to the book in the, in the show notes as well. Uh, Kitsis.com slash 21. If people want to get it. Yeah. I, I read, I read her book a couple of years ago when it, when it came out as well, and just very powerful for perspective about how to, how to talk to 
to clients going through those situations. And I mean, I love even the, like the name of her book. I mean, she called it no longer awkward. Like the whole point is it's written for financial advisors about how to no longer feel at least as awkward when your clients are grieving and, and, and crying and, and going through those trouble spots. And like so many little things, I still remember the, the one that stuck out to me the most in reading her book was she, she made the point that if you have a client that's crying, don't reach out and, and, and hand them the tissue box. Cause if you reach out and hand them the tissue box, the actual subtle statement you're making is, I'm ready for you to be done crying now. Here's some tissues. Please stop and get on with it, which may actually be an accurate reflection of sometimes what you're feeling when you give someone a tissue. But, you know, if, if, if the goal is to, you know, give, let clients grieve and give clients the space to go through the process that they need to go through, you know, there's all these little things that we often do without even realizing it that makes it more awkward for the for the client. So yeah, I highly recommend the book as well. We'll make sure there's a, a link in the show notes. It's impossible, truly impossible to underestimate the value of that kind of effort. I, I, I can imagine some of your audience might be thinking, you know, that's all nice, but I'm running a business. I got people to take care of. I've got clients that are, you know, pounding on my door and I am just too busy for that sort of thing. But it has an, an immeasurable impact on your relationships with your client and, and the effort is so worth it. And I, 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 um, as you and I were chatting, I wanted to grab something really quick because I had a client, not a widow, not a divorcee, just a client, actually my very first client all those years ago. God love them. They suffered a lot as I figured all this out. But his dad died back in February of this year. And I hauled out Amy's book because she's got all these little scripts for what do you say in a note, a condolence note. And so I, you know, I, I used it as a starting point and put my own voice on it and sent it off to him. And he sent me a note back that says, an email, a little handwritten note, thank you for your loving comforting remarks and sentiments after my dad died recently. Your note of comfort meant the world to me. Your words were very poignant and thoughtful. I appreciate your support and outreach to me. Thanks a million, which is what I hope to gladly retire with. Sincerely and with appreciation, Randy. And I've kept this. Obviously, it was right here at my fingertips, but I've kept this because it was it's a reminder to me that all this squishy, touchy-feely stuff that sometimes gets such short shrift in the work that we do with our clients or where we think we should just be spending our times is part of what changes lives. It's incumbent on us to embrace that part of our relationship with our client in addition to the investments, tax planning, estate planning, insurance planning, etc. So I'm curious... As you got into this niche, because you, you had an interesting path leading up to it. You were, you mentioned you, you were a relation manager at Vanguard and then you went out and you started your own practice and then you bought a practice and had to go through that transition. And then a few years after you bought a practice, you decided to go into a niche. So, so this, this kind of brings to me two questions. Number one, I'm just curious, like, do you actually regret that you bought a practice since you bought it and then a few years later you, went to pivot other directions anyways. And then my second question is, how do you actually communicate to the people you bought like two years ago? Hey, I'm now going into, I'm now going to specialize in women in transition. You know, I'm going to assume all the clients you bought were not originally women. So like, how does all that flow? I mean, how do, how do you, how do you roll out a, such a focused niche like that with an existing client base and, you know, do you wish you'd actually just done that in the first place instead of buying a practice or, or was this part of the evolution? 
Well, I just said, thanks for being a client all these years, but bye-bye. No, actually, I did not say that. That is not at all what I said. I would think that would be a little revenue disruptive since there's (laughs) probably some payment obligations for that acquisition. How do you roll out a niche like women in transition? I mean, uh, like it's gender specific. It's stage of life specific. Like there's a – the good news, like there's a lot of specificity to that. But I'm going to assume most of your clients that you bought did not happen to fall into that niche. Well, that's that's actually a very interesting observation because in fact, about half – of our clients. They weren't, they certainly weren't all in transition when they came to us, but they, some were in transition when they came to us. Some ended up going through a transition, you know, when they were with us. There's just a lot, there was actually not as much incongruity as you might think. And the other part, and I got to throw this in really quick, is when you make a choice to really narrow down and focus on a niche like we did. I mean, we really went from the universe down to this pretty narrow pipeline. And in addition to hyperventilating and having a am I crazy moment or moments, what the heck am I doing? What the hell am I doing? The other thing that we did was we said, okay, we know that if when we put the stake in the ground and say million dollar minimum, deep dive financial planning, women in transition, like the next 10 people through the door are not going to be that. And, and so we have to do something to make sure that when the exceptions come, and they will, that we have a clearly defined process for handling them. Or we're going to be, you know, wallowing in exceptions, breaking our own rules, and back where we are with the full pet store in short order. And so at the same time we created, we made the decision to focus on this niche, we created an ideal client profile, which is literally a written document that summarizes who is our ideal client. It's almost like a checklist of a couple of dozen items that that describes who she is. Now, in fact, that person does not exist. We don't have a single client that fills all of our 25 or so items on our ideal client profile. She's like an amalgamation of a bunch of different clients. But what's so powerful about having gone through that exercise, and it's a pain in the butt, I get that, but having gone through it, it becomes the filter by which you choose which clients you work with. Whether or not she's a woman in transition, do I make an exception? Because if they fit everything in the ideal client profile except gender, well, will we consider an exception? And the answer is, well, sure. It, and, and I get a lot of harassment, teasing, loving, I'm sure, but harassment from some of my fellow colleagues. Will you accept a man in transition? We did. I was just going to say, I've had colleagues give me grief about, well, if you, you're telling me if you had a man in transition show up, you wouldn't work with him. And the answer was, Well, probably not, but I don't know. And the good news is that I've got a process for making that decision, so I don't have to figure it out on my own. And about three years ago, we had a, it was a friend of ours, mine and Mark's from church, somebody who I've known for years. He was an engineer of all things, working for a large communications company, had been with them for decades and was told, we're eliminating your position, giving you a big fat severance package. Thank you for all the service. Bye-bye. And he was 62 years old when that happened. And 
He, at church, about two weeks later, said, hey, you know, I got all the paperwork for this severance package. I'm having a little trouble figuring it out. Can I come by? Would you just kind of help me read through it? And I said, of course, I'm, I'm happy to do this. He came to the office. I start going through this paperwork with him. And I'm, I can't help it. My little financial planner brain is starting to rack and stack everything that he's got going with this. And I finally said, do you realize how much you have and are going to have to deal with here. And he didn't. It was, it, it was about, a, he thought it was about a third of what it, it actually was. And so I said, well, in fact, you've got a lot more going on here. And that's when he said, well, will you help me with this? Can you be my financial planner? And I immediately said, no, I'm sorry. I cannot be your financial planner. Oh, come on. Won't you at least think about it? I'll be, I'll be, I'll be a compliant client because I joked with him about non-compliant clients and how they are no fun. And I said, I tell you what, I'm going to need to think about this. And so I sent him on his way. And it was one of the few times that we actually physically hauled out the ideal client profile. And as a team, we all sat around in the bullpen and kind of ticked through the list of the 25 or so items on our checklist. And this guy was at about 90% of all of the items on our checklist. And even so, we did give ourselves permission. We said, okay, we'll bring them on board. But if we have so much as a whiff of problem from this guy, we give ourselves permission to graduate him. And here we are three and a half years later, and he's been a terrific client. So the, my, I guess the moral of that story is, yes, have a niche for sure and be true to it. No, don't go wandering off the path, but have a clearly defined process for how are you going to handle exceptions when they come to you and then stick to that. Because I, you, you asked the question of, did I regret not did I, did I regret buying this practice given the fact that I decided to focus on a niche later? And what did I do about all the pet store clients, so to speak? And the, I, I do not regret having bought the practice because of having gone through the acquisition and transition process, it teed me up for being open to considering a niche. I don't know that I ever would have been open or willing to consider it if I hadn't bought the pet store and had to take care of all the animals, so to speak. Because the size of the practice gave you some financial foundation of focus or or like because you did it with the with like the open ended pet store and said, "Oh my god, I don't want to build this way for the next ten and twenty years. I gotta, I gotta buckle down." Yeah, yeah. It, it, certainly, buying the practice gave me some financial wiggle room. Although I'll, that financial wiggle room disappeared. Thank you very much. I'm looking at you, 2008. But I'll talk about that in a second. But it did give me some financial wiggle room. But but more so, it it was a very concentrated exposure to having to deal with all kinds of different clients with all kinds of different financial planning needs. You know, you've heard the analogy about boiling a frog and how the frog, you know, you put them in a pot of hot, a pot of water and you turn on the heat and they don't realize they're boiling because the heat just goes up around them and they don't really notice it. I think that happens sometimes with financial planners when they open the door, put out the shingle and they just start working with anybody that has two dimes and can fog a mirror that they're just going to do what they need to do to take care of the clients that come to them. And what they don't realize is that every time they have a, a client come to them, that's got an issue that's completely different than any other client they've got. They're like that frog that's boiling and doesn't realize it because they're running off and spending a ton of time researching and getting up to speed to make good recommendations to this client, where if they had just said no thank you and waited for two or three more of the kind that they're already really good, it would have been time much better spent. And so for me, 
I wasn't the frog that was in the, the pot of water and they turned on the heat. I was the frog that they threw into the boiling pot. And I was like, whoa, Nellie, I don't want to have any part of that. And it really did provide some motivation for me to streamline and make some choices about who do I really want to serve. But once you make that decision, what do you do with all the rest? Yeah. I mean, are are the, you know, is that is that original base that you bought? I mean, are they are they still around? Did you did you tell them you were making an I mean, did you tell all the dudes in the existing practice you were making a niche for women in transition? It was a multiple, it was a multi-year carefully crafted process that we had in place. Some of it was very straightforward. We, you know, we did a racking and stacking of the clients and we would put together a graduation list is what I called it. And it was my job as the the, the chief, head janitor, chief bottle washer to graduate these clients. And every year I would get, I, we would create a new list. And for, so for a couple of years, I was graduating a lot of clients and I would graduate them to other financial planners. Sometimes it was such a straightforward situation, a retired teacher with a pension and an $85,000 IRA who was renting an apartment. You know, for that, I would handhold her to Vanguard and get her set up in an account at Vanguard. And so I graduated clients that were very far off off the, the niche. By graduating, like that, that's literally kind of the messaging. You know, hey, hey, I we've worked with we've worked together for a while, but you know, I've helped you through the journey. You've gotten to a good place. I'm I'm gonna graduate you away from working with me as a financial advisor and move you on to the next stage of your financial planning journey. So, of course, language and communication is very, very important. And so that message would be delivered roughly as follows. It's important to me that you are always cared for um, from a financial perspective and that you're getting great value for the fees that we are charging you for our financial planning services. And in the last year or so that we've been working together, I have noted that your situation has simplified over the years. And I have a suggestion for you. And that is, I'd like to recommend to you a change to a financial planner who is going to be a bit less expensive than we are, because I want to make sure that da 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 da. And so the, again, this goes back to, I want you to be cared for. I want it to make, to be good value for you. I want it to make good economic sense for you. And so I have a suggestion and tell me what you think about this. And, and I'd ask them about it and not one of them said, Oh, I take that back. I had one and I, just only one said, are you firing me? And I graduated a lot of clients. I probably graduated a good 30, 40 clients and only one got really cranky with me, said, you're firing me. And in her case, I was, I was firing her. There was no graduating. <laughs> I was firing her. But part, so, but, and so, but those, those are, that works for, for clients that it's clearly not a fit, but there's always a gray area back to, that's why we've got the written ideal client profile is things can get a little bit gray. And so for the gray areas, we will, we've kept them. <laughs> we've there, there, and that's why, Again, although our all of our new clients for the past ten years literally have met our million dollar minimum, the I've got some of the pet store clients left that I cannot, in my good heart of hearts, graduate them. And so I will take care of them until the day they die, and then I will graduate their kids. And they're okay that they may be a a a, a dude who's an engineer and feeling very stable in life 
working with a firm that specializes with women in transition. Yeah, because the way that we communicated that is that we, in, instead of saying only forevermore in the future, we're working with women in transition, what we've said is that we have developed an expertise in serving women in transition. And so many, many of our new clients are widows and divorcees. And we, we love our engineers and we love our client couples. We do have a lot of women in transition coming to us now because we have such expertise in this in this particular niche. And so it wasn't uh, we're giving the rest of you the boot. It's that we have really become good at this. And so we're um, seeing a lot more of these types of clients coming to us. So what does that look like on a new client basis going forward? Like where, where do your clients come from in, in this niche? Well, one thing that we did is while it, communicating with our existing clients was soft around the niche and where they fit in it and who we're serving going forward, all of our, I'll call it collateral, our website, our digital presence, all of our printed material, and as importantly, if not more importantly, what I say and what my team says when we communicate with anybody else about what we do is always about our specialty in taking care of women who are going through a very difficult moment in their life. And I, I mention that because we've, we've noted a pretty dramatic shift in the source of our referrals because as recently as, you know, seven or eight years ago, the vast majority of our referrals were coming from existing clients. I'd say 75% of our client our prospect referrals were coming from existing clients with another call it 23% coming from centers of influence. And then the, the tiny little, oh my gosh, where on earth did they come from? You know, they find you online and other weird things like that. And in the last seven to eight years, it's swung around so dramatically that I would say at this point, about 85% of our clients are coming from centers of influence. And these are specifically divorce attorneys, estate attorneys, CPAs, and other professional service providers who are excited about knowing exactly which financial planner they should send their client who's just lost her husband. Because one of the challenges I think financial planners have is a fear of saying they only focus on a niche because they're afraid of losing business. And in my experience, it is empowerful to say, this is what I do, because it leaves no doubt in anybody's mind who's a good client for you. And there's so many of those kinds of clients that I will never run out of business. And, and yet if you're a financial planner who tells, who answers the what do you do question with, I um, own a financial planning practice. We provide comprehensive financial planning to small business owners and families, helping them to achieve blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I had seen a website the other day that they're, they, they said they work with individuals, families, institutions, and women. There we go. That narrows it down. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you it's not so, work with? And <laughs> so if you're an estate attorney or a divorce attorney, how do you know when should I send a client to Joe or Kathy or Evelyn or Pete or, you know, how do you know that? Because deep down they know we don't literally work with everyone. Clearly, like we, we run a business. So, yeah, the, and I find that's the dynamic. Like, you say you work with everybody. We know you don't really work with everybody and that you're going to be better at some people than others. But if I don't know who you're good at, I avoid my embarrassment by just not referring you anyone. 
Exactly right. And we have um, developed a pretty powerful reputation within our community here in Orange County. I'll even extend that up into Los Angeles County here in Southern California because everybody knows us as, oh, you're the financial planners that work with women in transition. And and it was so funny. I was at a breakfast, a three-person breakfast this morning. It was a little professional networking breakfast. And the gentleman at the table has met me once. He met me once six weeks ago at a networking meeting where everybody kind of got up and around the table said who you are and what you do. And then afterward, you get together for these three-person meetings. And he and the other woman were chatting about what their respective work was. And he, afterward, afterward, he looked at me and he said, okay, Evelyn, tell me more about what you do because I don't remember too much about it, but I do remember you focus on women in transition. And I could have leapt over the table and kissed the boy because I I was like, hallelujah, brother. That's exactly right. And the fact that you've met me once six weeks ago and you remember that, this is why our centers of influence are sending us so much business. And this is truly the power of a niche because people know when to send you a particular client and you can truly be the expert in serving that client. And that is such a win-win. And so you just go out there to local networking meetings, attorney meetings, accounting meetings, chambers of commerce, things like that, and just put out there that you're the women in transition financial advisor specialist and, and just try to get the word out through networking meetings? Is that is that what, what the marketing process looks like for you? Yeah, I belong to a professional networking association called Provisors, which has been... Provisors? Provisors, mm-hmm, provisors. And that's been a very positive experience for me, not only because I've been able to share the, share the word, get the message out regarding Inspired Financial is the place that you'd like to send your women clients who are going through a difficult change in their life. And I'm not talking menopause. And also because they've been a, a, an incredible source of resources for me if I need to find an estate attorney, a CPA, a life coach. You know, there's all kinds of different professionals that are part of Provisors. And so it's been a really great resource for me. But beyond just the professional networking group, it's, you know, if at um at my at my business club, you know, and, and when I have an opportunity to attend women's networking events there, I'm pretty straight I'm very straightforward about who we serve and what we do. I get asked to speak at women's events all the time, constantly being asked to speak at women's events. And it's a great opportunity for me to say. When you're recognized in a niche. Yeah, right? that this, this is who I serve and we're not a good fit for everybody. Although I'm happy to speak with you because I know everybody here in Orange County and I can make a great referral for you. But this is who we serve and we are the firm for taking care of you or, or a woman you love who's in this kind of a situation. And so what if you, like, do you ever still get people who come in and want to work with you and don't actually fit the niche aside from the engineering dude that you took anyways? But like the, I mean, do you, do you still get others that come in that don't fit the niche? And and what do you, what do you do with those folks when they come up? We have a prospecting, I'll call it checklist or phone conversation that we will have with somebody to, to, if they are just nowhere in the park, so in the ballpark, so to speak, as far as being a fit for us, we want to honor their time and try to help them get to the right resource right away. Now, if we have that phone conversation with them and it seems like, well, 
there might be something here. We'll invite them in for that discovery meeting. And I can tell pretty quickly in a discovery meeting whether or not this we're going to be able to help these people and if they're going to be a good fit for us. And part of that discovery meeting is my own mental running through of the prospect or excuse me, the ideal client profile. And, and because I, I, I know what it is after 10 years of implementing it, I've got it pretty well etched in my brain. And so I'll give you a, for example, our most, our most recent client that we brought on board was a couple that was referred to us by a professional colleague that he's a business coach. And the relationship between my colleague is with the husband because the husband owns a small family business and husband is, is going to inherit a lot of money. So we got a, a transition that's imminent there, but he and his wife are having a really hard time talking about money and they've got three grown, three grown or nearly grown daughters that they have lavished with money and tuition and ongoing support. And there's some conflict about helping our daughters become good financial decision makers and helping my wife and I communicate about money and money choices on the cusp of this big financial change that's coming into our lives. And so, so as I'm having a conversation with him, I'm clearly on the ideal client profile, this is not a woman in transition. That one, he fails. But I start, you know, it's a, a client, a discovery meeting with him and his wife, and I'm kind of going through the rest of the, the checklist, and there's a lot that matches up on the rest of the checklist. And so there's a situation where it makes sense for us to invite them into a relationship with us, and we're cognizant of where they don't meet the checklist, and, and we coach them. I don't say, look, you're, you're missing it on this part of our checklist list. But what I do say is you are aware that we normally focus on serving women in transition. And clearly you're not divorcing and neither of you are widowed. But I believe that the technical and relational skills that we bring to bear in helping our women in transition will be helpful for you too. And And then I connect the dots for them. So what about the ones that just flat out don't match? Like you, they're, they're not in the niche and you, you can't map them to the niche. Right. So if it's, if it's, if it's really apparent, like I'll, I'll give you an example. We received a phone call today from a woman who saw me speak and she's getting divorced and, and really needs some help. And these are the, these are very difficult ones for me because she needs help. She really needs a planner to coach her on some of the property settlement decisions that she's got to, got to make. But our fees are going to be way out of line for her. You know, in this particular situation, it sounded like she was going to end up with net net worth of about $400,000. And so for me to come in and say, yeah, I can do that, but I'm going to have to charge you $10,000, just not appropriate. And so in that situation, we have a short list of other CDFAs that will charge just on an hourly basis. And she's a perfect fit for that kind of a situation, just from both from a value perspective and also from a complexity perspective. Now, the tougher ones are the ones that sort of make it through our initial phone call. I bring them in for a discovery meeting and we get, you know, 30, 40 minutes into a discovery meeting and all the bells and whistles are going off in my head that this is not ever going to work. Not the good bells and whistles, the bad bells yeah, and whistles. Yeah, not the good kind. Not the, I'll, I'll call them the sirens and warning <laughs> hoots that this is never, ever in my lifetime is this going to work. And in those situations, I don't want to say I wing it because I don't, but I've got a, I'll call it a half dozen scripts that I have 
prepared and practiced and practiced on the team, but also practiced in conversations with other prospects that weren't a good fit, that I will break them out and I will say, I am concerned that we may not be a good fit for you. And so let me just share with you why I think that is and get your feedback on that. And straight shooting girl that I am, I just give it to them straight, honest, direct, and respectful. And the vast majority of the time, they say, I think you're right. And we're all nodding in unison and I thank them for their time. I make a referral if, I, if, if it's appropriate and I send them on their merry way. And so you'll just refer them to another advisor in the area that's... Yeah, that's a better fit for, for whatever reason. And a lot of times that, that revolves around investments. You know, if they are really, really working me over during the discovery meeting, you know, this very, very first meeting, if they're really working me over on stock tips and investment strategies and how did your recommendations do last year and that kind of thing, that is a big warning sign for me because that's not going to be a good relationship. And I need to send them off to somebody that all they do is investment management and that's where they hang their hat on their value. So where do you, where do you see the, the business going from here, like as you look forward, is it, you know, we've got good momentum in this niche where we're just going to keep powering forward and adding clients and we'll add another staff member or two as we need to and just just iterate on where we're going? Or, or do you have other plans or, or visions about shifting it somewhere else? I'm, I'm, I'm curious where you see it from here with kind of the momentum that you're getting now. Right. That's an excellent question. And we actually sort of started tackling this about a year ago. And the, the impetus was for that was that we had been growing and we were going to need to hire some new people. And um, bring it, it's, we're a small team. And so you bring on just one person and there's culture issues. You know, you have to really be careful about who you're selecting and how they're going to play with the rest of the team. And so it was a good moment to pause and ask, where do we see this going? Another factor that had come up right around that same time is that we had actually just referred away like literally four or five prospective clients that were not small prospective clients. These were, you know, from strictly an AUM perspective, these were folks that were, call it 700 to $800,000. And so this isn't small, even in Southern California, that's not small. And so I know that some of the younger team, the junior team members were chafing a little bit around, okay, what are we doing? Uh, you know, why on earth would we send that away? And what's this mean for us hiring a new person? So we actually spent a lot of time. It was almost a, an opportunity for us to reset around the niche. Do we stick with this niche? How about the depth services? How about the price point, if you will, how we're being compensated for this? And it was a collective decision that we are going to go ahead and carry on with this niche and we are going to maintain the service level, which means we're going to have to hire another planner and another client services associate to help us out. And so fast forward a year later to where we are today. And I had just the most interesting conversation with my team at our last quarterly review meeting, which was just back in the beginning of March, because one of the things that came up during our conversation was that we love the work we're doing and, and that's great. And there was some conversation around, do we need to raise our minimums? which was such an interesting conversation to have, given that a year ago, there was a lot of conversation about why aren't we accepting 
clients that don't have as much but can still use our services. And so to specifically answer your question of where is it going from here, we've spent so much time and energy and passion over the past year to two years in reaffirming the niche that we serve and then to build structured processes to support the care of these ladies and their families and all of our clients. And I'm, I feel like I'm on the edge of grand adventure that we are about to push off in our boat and set sail on these seas because we put so much effort into creating it. I've built it and now they're going to come. And so we're, we are, we're not just going to carry on the way we are. We are about to launch based off of this incredible platform that we have created over the past couple of years. And I can hardly wait to see where we go from here. Very cool. Very cool. So as we get to the end here, this is you know, a show about financial advisors sharing some, some success stories that they've had. And one of the things I've long observed is success means very different things to different people and, and even different things to us at different stages in our life. And, and so I'm curious as someone who's created what I think most people would objectively call a very successful business with you know, clients coming in and paying well for your services and $1.2 million of revenue and, and you know, good metrics to the practice. I'm curious how you define success and, and whether it even ties to that stuff or, or you know, dr- drives off of different things. So what, is, what does success mean to you? Sure. The, where I am today has been a, a cumulative result of the path that I've walked to get here. Success for me along that entire path has always started with being the best version of myself that I can be to, to show up with the very best Evelyn that is available. And then in doing so, to inspire my team, my clients, my colleagues, and my communities to be the best versions of them that they can be. And if, if, if I have done that, when it's all said and done, if I can look back and say, I showed up well consistently, and as a result, everybody who was with me on the journey showed up well and exceeded everything they thought that they could have done as a result, then that's great success. Very cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast and, and sharing your story with us. It's been a pleasure and a privilege, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.